Both choirs just feel like we can just go home now. And just wonderful, great ministry to us. If you will stand for the scripture reading, and I'm going to read this morning from John chapter 20. John 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself." Then entered in, therefore, the other disciple also who had first come to the tomb, and he saw and believed. And as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? They said to them, She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brethren, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, he, and, the, and that he had said these things to her. In verse 31, But these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. We are here today, Lord Jesus, because you live. There is no other explanation, God, for the work that you've accomplished in our hearts other than your very life within us. Thank you for your matchless grace. Thank you for your love as demonstrated for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your resurrection power, for your very life that you have given to us. We pray again, God, just for your deep ministry within us that we might never forget Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In Paul's letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he makes a very simple but 
um, amazing statement to his disciple that he loved and had, who had spent so many years with him. He nonetheless felt compelled to write to him and say to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And you wouldn't think you'd need to tell somebody, to, as particularly a Christian, and particularly a Christian who had spent so many years with someone like Paul, to not forget that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We all need that reminder, and that's what this day is about. And I'm thankful that it is still set aside on our calendars as a day to remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I've had 65 Easter's now. I can only remember two of those Easter's. The one, my little sister was four, maybe five years old, probably only four, dressed up in her beautiful white Easter dress with her black patent leather shoes, little socks with ruffles on the top. And I went out into my parents' garden and dug a hole and filled it with water and sprinkled leaves over the top. And then I got my little sister by the hand and I told one of my brothers to get her other hand and we led her over that hole. And she sunk up to her waist. Beautiful white dress, white socks with ruffles and she was not happy. (laughs) My mom and dad impressed upon me that there is a hell. (laughs) And it is for boys like me. That is the first Easter that I remember. It was a couple years later that on Easter, I also, um, I gave my life to Christ. I came to understand that he loved me, that he had given himself for me, and I simply said, Jesus, I want you to love me. And he said to me, I do love you. And I believe it was at that moment that I became a child of God. I'm sure the first Easter that I remember contributed to the second Easter (laughs) that I remember. But we're not, you're not going to remember more than likely um, this Easter or even this sermon or even the beautiful music that we've had this morning. That's okay. As long as you remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That is the one thing we should never forget, Jesus and him risen from the dead. This morning, I'm not going to give a very complicated sermon because this is a very not complicated um, thing that God has accomplished on our behalf. We are remembering the cross of Christ and we are remembering the resurrection of Christ. The cross is about two things. It is God's statement on what our sin deserves. We should have no um, misconceptions about the horror of sin and what it deserves. The cross is God's statement on what we deserve. In our sunrise service this morning, um, we read from Isaiah 53, And I'd like to go back there again because it's a great passage that talks about, again, what we deserve. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he, speaking of Christ, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors." We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. I'm going to just be reading a few passages this morning, again just by way of reminder. In Romans chapter 3, another passage that speaks about our condition and why we so desperately need a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul will say that we were helpless, sinners, ungodly and enemies of God. The cross of Jesus Christ is a statement on our sin and what we deserve. There is none righteous. 
The cross of Christ is also God's statement concerning his love for us. It's amazing that one cross says both. One cross, it says, I deserve death. That there is nothing good in me apart from the Lord. I stand condemned. And the cross also says, God loves us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For those who stand condemned, God gave his son out of love. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all that, those, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So four key passages of scripture that very clearly say that the cross of Christ says that God loves us. Easy to summarize those two aspects of the cross. You are a sinner and this must be understood. We cannot run from it. We cannot redefine it. We must accept what God says about us. How tragic it would be to live life denying that your sin deserves the wrath of God. To exit this life and then stand before him on no merit other than your own. And that is to have no merit whatsoever. Our sin is an inescapable fact. It deserves the wrath of God. But I have a twofold problem. The sins that I have committed, and they are many, and the sin that I am, my identity, my person apart from Christ. Paul will write and say that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse not only tells us that we have been made righteous through Christ who gave himself for us, but it also says that he who knew no sin became sin. So that's how God sees me. Though he loves me and loves all, he sees the one that he loves as being sin. And that's why his son had to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So my problem is not just what I have done, but my problem is what I am. And the cross is God's one answer to both problems. His blood is the sole basis of forgiveness and justification before God. 
And my death and resurrection with him is the sole basis of deliverance from the power of sin and for what I am apart from him. By the blood of Christ and only by Christ's blood shed for us are we forgiven. But in his dying for us, as we place our faith in him, the scripture says that we were crucified with him. So why Paul said in Galatians 2.20 again, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what I am has been dealt with as well as what I have done. But the cross, as I've said, always said, also says you are loved. And I don't care how old or young you are, that is a truth that we always need to know. You are loved. The older we get, sometimes I, I believe that God's intention is the more unworthy that we see ourselves as being. And the more amazing God's love becomes. Because even though we've placed our faith in Christ, we still are capable of all kinds of evil. We would not want to live with ourselves on many days, much less expect anybody else to be happy living with us. And you wonder how anybody can say to you and mean it when they know you well, I love you. I love you. In the Song of Solomon, after the bride, the young wife had, had um, not responded to her husband and, and he had left and she realized what she had done and she was remorseful and grieved and and convicted over it, and they reconciled, and her words after they had reconciled were, my beloved is mine, and his desire is for me. It's an amazing thing when the one that knows us better than any other desires us. He loves us. You are totally and undeservedly loved. There is nothing you can do to deserve it, it is totally grace. And there's nothing you can do to end it or change it. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can remember as a, as a child, um, my mom and dad trying to convince me it's like they could just tell they just wanted just to open up my, 
my, my soul and be able just to get into me that they loved me and God loved me. On an Easter Sunday especially, I wish that I could do the same. Just somehow just get to your souls, to the deepest part of your being, and communicate to you in a way that would grip you for the rest of your life that you are loved. But God has one thing that he points us to, to convince us of this truth. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, he gave his son to die for us. There's nothing anyone else could ever do to convince you or me that we are loved. It is not humanly possible to put that into another person's being. Only God can do that. And he does that by bringing us to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is both a statement on what I deserve, and it is the ultimate statement of God's undeserving love for us. His love is not based on our performance. It is truly pure grace. This day is not just about the cross of Christ, his death on our behalf, but obviously it is also about the resurrection, that Christ is alive, and Jesus lives. And again, as I make that statement, it's, it's, we can go through life, especially in these days when it seems that society is crumbling around us, and, and we can be so weighed down by the sin of the world and the, even the sin of our own hearts, and, and somebody says, Jesus is alive. Does it make the impact that it ought to make? And once again, this is something that can only happen by the Spirit of God. As he works in our heart to bring us to this, this point of illumination that Jesus is not in the grave. He is alive. The resurrection speaks of the power of God. It is his power over sin and death. It is sin which put Jesus to death. He became sin. Therefore, he suffered the consequences of sin, and that is death. And by the power of God's life, he was raised from the dead. That tells us that the only thing that is stronger than sin, stronger than death, is the very life of God. And when you place your faith in Jesus and simply say, Jesus saved me, you are given the very life of God. Resurrection, life, the power of God over sin and death. Willpower, good intentions, will never conquer sin or death. There's only one force in this universe that is stronger than sin and death, and that is the very life of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 11, Paul says that his life gives life to our mortal body. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. He truly does this. He's in us to give life to us, to animate us, to where the explanation for our being is simply Christ in us. He delivers us from sin and death. We no longer have to walk in bondage and defeat. He lives in us to live his life through us. The resurrection of Christ says not only is there power over sin and death, but there is hope. Now, at this moment, in the face of what I've done, and in the face of what I am apart from him, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am a new creature. And I am no longer judged by God on the basis of what I have done, and I am no longer what I was. But I am a new creature, a new man in Christ. In the future, because of the resurrection, there is a hope laid up for us. There is a crown of righteousness. We will be with him. We will be received into glory and we will be brought into complete conformity to him because he lives. The resurrection of Christ means there is a new life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes and says, he who has Christ has the life. He who has life has Christ because Christ is eternal life. And as I read in John 20 in our scripture reading, these things I've written that you might know that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that believing in him that you might have life in his name. Because of this new life, there is a New motivation in life. If you look with me over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's an amazing passage that talks about the, really the consequences and the implications of Christ being, having given himself to us and risen from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. A new motivation. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says that they've, he, he, his life was constantly in peril, that he had fought with wild beasts and, and constantly facing death. And he says, why would I do this? But now his whole life motivation has changed. He is living in the reality that God gave his son for him, that he is loved by God, and it has completely altered his perspective on what should motivate us in life. It's altered his outlook on other people. He says in verse 15, And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I think what Paul's saying there is that as a person who has been, been gripped by God according to who we are and what we have done, and he has given us new life in him, 
And we understand that God sees us now in Christ and not according to my performance, not according to my sin, then it is the most natural thing to view other people as well according to where they are with Jesus. It's not about what they've done, but it's about who they are in relationship with. We no longer view others according to the flesh, Paul's saying, just as we no longer know Christ according to the flesh. There's a new identity, as he says in verse 13, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. And then in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A new creature, the very righteousness of God is our new identity. We have a new purpose because Christ is alive. Verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. My purpose in life, because Christ gave himself for me, Christ now lives in me, my purpose in life is simply to introduce others to him. The scriptures tell us that because of this life, we have a new freedom from law and performance, from sin and death. There is a new covenant where we've been brought into this permanent, inseparable relationship with God. We have a new message. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. We do not preach ourselves. We preach only Jesus. A new resource that we live, and that is himself, and we no longer have to live from ourselves. And a new ambition. We live for him, not for self. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul talks about his own conversion and the amazing, miraculous work that God had accomplished in him. And due to that life indwelling him, he said, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the, of the, from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have been made perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There are so many things that we can say that the life of Christ has accomplished for us. And one more on my list is, it is because Jesus lives that there is a church, his church, the body of Christ, and we are included in it. 
Watchman Nee says, God makes it very clear in his word that he has only one answer to every human need. His son, Jesus Christ. He speaks of how the blood of Christ has completely satisfied God. Completely. He points out how in the Passover tradition, when that very first Passover, when the Lord said to the people of Israel, take that lamb and take its blood after you've killed it and paint the outside of your doorway, both sides and, the root and, the, and above the door. And then when the angel passed over, if he saw the blood, he would keep moving and no one in the house would die. Those inside the house didn't see the blood. It was for God to see. The same was true on the Day of Atonement when the tabernacle and the temple had been set up. Once a year, the high priest was to take blood into that place where no one else could see. No other person, no other Israelite ever had a chance to go into the Holy of Holies. It was just God and a priest. And the blood was for God to see. So Watchman Nee makes the point that the blood is for God. It is the blood of Jesus that has been given to God as payment for our sin. Then he says, the whole trouble for us is that we are trying to sense the value of the blood. We are trying to feel its value, to estimate subjectively what the blood is for us. And he says, we can't do that. It doesn't work that way. The blood is for God to see. We then have to accept God's valuation of it. And in doing so, we shall find our salvation. The blood has satisfied God. It must satisfy us also. There is only one thing that can cleanse our conscience, the scripture says, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not, not remorse, not repentance, not confession, the only thing that can cleanse the conscience is the only thing that God finds acceptable, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And by his shed blood, we have peace with God. So Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we are justified, Romans 5 says, on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, that he gave himself for us, shed his blood for us. Peace with God. But then, thankfully, amazingly, Paul says in Romans 7, just being honest, Paul's saying, there is no peace within me. And there's that perplexing passage, but one that we can all so readily identify with where Paul says, the very thing I do not wish to do, I do. There is evil in me, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Spoken by the man who says we have peace with God. And yet, two chapters later, he's going, there is no peace within me. I am not a man at peace. There is evil in me, and I am doing what I do not wish to do. And this is why we need his life. This is why Romans 8, where Paul's going to say, it is by the Spirit of God in us, the very life of Christ within us, that we can know life 
in peace. Not just positionally peace with God, but in my experience, I can know peace because of Christ who is in me. So as Watchman Nee would say, justification is half the story. He's not saying there's a second story. He's not saying that there's a, a second filling or anything else. He's just saying when you speak of the gospel, justification is half the story. It solves the problem of our standing before God, but God offers a solution to the problem of our conduct. And that is, again, his one answer to man's every need. Jesus. Crucifixion, burial, and resurrection with him. In Romans chapter 6, this is where Watchman Nee is going with this and really what the essence of Easter is about. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus died for us because our sins warranted it and because he loves us. But I need more than for him to remove my sins. I need him to deal with who I am. And it is the cross of Christ that not only takes care of my sin, but it also is the end of me. This is why Paul says, having concluded that one man died for all, therefore we are controlled by the love of Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. I need God to deal with me. And it is on the basis of the cross that he does both. He washes away my sin and he puts me to death. I don't put myself to death. I don't include myself into his resurrection. He includes me into his death and resurrection. By his doing, I am crucified with him, buried with him, and raised to the newness of life with him. By God's doing. Paul started out by saying, we know. And then he says again in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He who died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And now another knowing, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And the clear implication is, nor is it master over us. Because Christ, who has conquered sin and death, is in us. It has no right to master us because he lives. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Knowing these things, he now says, reckon it to be true. Verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Know these things. Reckon on it, and then present yourselves to him. 
Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, unrighteousness, but verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. I am alive from the dead because of his life within me and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I have been crucified, buried, and raised with him. Jesus Christ is alive. And when we place our faith in him, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. The Lord includes me in his death and resurrection. I don't include myself. This is the work of God, but I must know it, reckon on it, and present myself to him. And then as Romans 8 would say, walk according to his spirit. It is beyond um, good to know that we are not on a performance basis with God. It is beyond comforting to know that our sins have been washed away and that we have been crucified with Him. It is beyond imagination to know that He has risen from the dead and given us his very life. But the resurrection is not just a set of facts. This is not something that we just say, well, now this gets me to heaven. But this is the reality for how, how we now are able to live. Major Thomas used to say that this is the restoration of our humanity that man has been restored to what God always intended. And it is only by the life of Christ who lives that I can live this life. Free from the dominion and power of sin, free from the fear of death, but alive in Christ because of him who is alive and lives in me. I know that we can all say, if we've ever, ever seen any victory in our lives, seen any, any deliverance in any kind in our lives, any freedom in our lives, it has not been because we've tried harder or got more committed or more yielded. It is simply because Jesus did it, that we trusted him and said, Jesus, I know you're alive. I'm not praying to a dead man. I'm talking to one who lives. And your word says you have given yourself to me. And there is no hope for me in this moment, in this day, other than you. And I turn to you, O God, the living one who has conquered sin and death, to live in me. Right now, in this moment, as only you can. Because there is no hope for me and my sin other than your life. There is only one answer to man's every need, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, as Paul said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He is risen. I'll pray. Father, again, these are, are just truths that are just so plain in your word, they're inescapable. 
It's amazing that we can mess things up so much and despite all that you have revealed that we would still try our hardest and think that we can earn your favor or your love. God, I, I can only pray that you would just break forth into each of our souls, our spirits, by your spirit, God, giving us a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would not trust in ourselves. If you need to show us, God, more of what our sin deserves, then do that, Lord, that we might know your grace and we might know your love for us as demonstrated in the cross. And I pray, God, that in the knowledge of, of your saving love and giving your son for us, that we would also to come, God, to just be gripped and controlled by the very life of Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would truly be the only explanation for our lives and that we can stand before you in glory and say, God, you did it. It was a life lived from you and not simply for you, from the one who has given himself to us. I thank you, God, for what was stated so eloquently that the one who gave himself for us has given himself to us that he might live his life through us. Thank you, God, for this. In Jesus' name, amen.